I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 27. So when statistics is typically taught in the university, the approach is usually purely utilitarian. You are given an urn filled with 10 blue marbles and eight red marbles. And if you reach into the urn and draw out one marble, what is the probability the marble is blue? And so you then plug numbers into a formula to calculate the resulting probability. Eventually, you move on to more sophisticated problems, such as being able to evaluate the significance of an experimental result. Does this score resulting from performing this experiment support or contradict the experiment's hypothesis? However, you're usually not taught in these classes the meaning behind the formulas. What does probability mean? What assumptions about the world have been made to support that meaning? These are actually very important details to have skipped because engineers just get the surface level formulas and then create algorithms to implement what they learned. Though, as we've seen in previous podcast episodes, the resulting systems (laughs) that are created and released into society often have unintended consequences. And I'm not just picking on the engineers. This Lack of understanding of the metaphysics of probability also affects how scientists do science and what scientific knowledge is produced. So to get at some of these issues that are involved and to help develop that understanding of the meaning behind probability and statistics, I thought it would be interesting in today's episode to do a deep dive into Justin Joke's book, Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism. Okay, let's dive in. In our modern world, the use of statistics is central, and it provides the fundamental machinery behind how our machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms turn data into predictions about the future. Companies, governments, and organizations use statistical algorithms and data to make sales and inventory predictions, to determine what ads to show you as you surf the internet, and to calculate the chance that you have cancer. They are even used to calculate your salary. For example, in 2004, a statistical model was created that estimates that a person will earn about $789 extra in annual salary for each additional inch of that person's height. Note that these are all correlational models. The models don't tell you why height influences salary, just they found this pattern and they detected this pattern in the data. Train the model on different data and you get different predictions. Yet it is on these predictions that our economy is based, since currently we view the results of these algorithms as objective facts. In fact, if you look back through the episodes of this podcast, especially the ones discussing automation, we are increasingly deferring our decision-making to these automated algorithms. 
our society is heading in the direction the algorithms tell us to go. And this is a subtle but key point the author Joke makes. Because we use historical data to train these algorithms, we essentially lock into place any existing problems in society, such as issues of injustice and racism, that are reflected in the data. Thus, one of Joke's main points in the book overall, which is captured in the title Revolutionary Mathematics, is that if we want to make substantive improvements to society, instead of just changing the policies and how we use different technologies, we should actually critique the motivations and philosophies behind the mathematics on which our algorithms are built. In other words, if we want real change, maybe we need a different mathematics. So what do I mean by the motivations and philosophies behind the mathematics on which our algorithms are built? Okay, let's try to get at this by discussing the meaning of probability again. If a weather forecaster says that there's a 65% chance of rain tomorrow, and let's say it does rain tomorrow, was the weather forecaster correct? What about if instead it did not rain tomorrow? But I can still ask the same question. Was the weather forecaster correct? As Joke quotes in the book, any person can provide a forecast for the probability of showers for tomorrow by just issuing a number between 0 and 100% without considering the characteristics of the atmosphere. This forecast, which is just a numerical representation of an unfounded opinion, is impossible to prove wrong. So I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here, but being a statistician, therefore, means never being wrong, which is good work if you can get it. After all, it either rains tomorrow or it doesn't. Setting aside quantum mechanics, in reality, there's no such thing as a probabilistic event. Yet, statistics is founded on this concept of something that does not exist. So again, what do we mean by probability? Even amongst mathematicians, that depends on who you ask. According to statistician Leonard Savage, it is unanimously agreed that statistics depends somehow on probability. But as to what probability is and how it is connected with statistics, there has seldom been such complete disagreement and breakdown of communication since the Tower of Babel. Boom. Now, one of my favorite sections of Joke's book is where he traces the history of how the meaning of probability has changed within the statistical community over the years. We could go back earlier, but if you look to the beginning of what we consider modern statistics, Ronald Fisher in 1925 literally wrote the book on probability called Statistical Methods for Research Workers, and in 1935, the design of experiments. In these texts, based on Fisher's research in agriculture, Fisher developed what is known as the frequentist understanding of probability, that probability can only be understood empirically by examining the long-run frequency of a physical system. So if we flip a coin 100 times, then those 100 coin flips are our empirical long-run sequence of events. If you then take that data, you count the number of heads and divide by 100, the result is an estimate of the probability 
I'm putting probability in air quotes, that you will get ahead the next time you flip that coin. Note that this reliance on this long run sequence of events makes discussing the probability of a single event, such as winning the election, impossible. But in Fisher's worldview, probability is an objective property of the world, and all we have to do is calculate it. And it is this understanding of probability that serves as the foundation for modern science, how a scientist tests a hypothesis. For example, a scientist forms a hypothesis about some effect on a system, and the scientist wants to know if that effect is real. Say, does this new fertilizer increase the crop yield? To Fisher, the scientist must create an experiment to test this hypothesis, find multiple plots of land, and treat each half of each plot with the fertilizer, and leave the other half untreated, then measure the yields of the resulting crops. In comparing the average yields of these two different groups, the land that was treated with the fertilizer compared to the land that was not treated with the fertilizer, is the difference measurably interesting? Now, to get at this answer, to be able to conclude something, Fisher says that we must create an artificial world. <laughs> the scientists must have a base assumption about the world that there is, in fact, no difference. So we assume this, this alternate universe where there is no difference in the land treated with the fertilizer compared to the land not treated with the fertilizer. And then that is the world that against which we are comparing our value we calculated from our experiment, our experimental results. Now, this assumption about the world is known as the null hypothesis. And once we have that null hypothesis, we have our experimental result, this calculation of the differences between the crop yields, we can calculate the probability that we get some difference as large or larger than what we measured in our experiment. This probability then is known as a p-value and it's foundational for how scientists claim their results are significant or not. This p-value has also been the source of much confusion. According to Fisher, if the p-value is small, the scientists can conclude the assumption the fertilizer has no effect is false. Remember, we had that null hypothesis that we made this. We created this virtual world where we assumed that there is, in fact, no difference. And then we did our experiment. And so if the p-value is small, then the scientists can conclude that that virtual world we created is false. And therefore, the scientist has support for concluding that the fertilizer does have an effect on the crop yield. In fact, the smaller the p-value, the stronger, I'm putting stronger in air quotes, the stronger the evidence against this assumption that the fertilizer has no effect. If the p-value is large, however, then we say there is no evidence that the fertilizer has an effect. We have no evidence against this virtual world we created. The key question, though, is how small is small enough? Remember, that p-value is what scientific publications use to determine if a scientific paper gets published or not. And it's that probability that determines the effectiveness of drug trials or whether the scientist gets a grant. So that p-value is very important. And because of that importance, 
you would think that there's some sophistication in how scientists determine exactly how small is small enough. How small does the p-value need to be for the result to be considered interesting? You would think that there's an objective way to determine that critical cutoff line between experimental success and failure, which determines whether we've created scientific knowledge or not. According to Fisher, he said small enough means 5%. If the experimental result gives a p-value less than 5%, then that qualifies as a statistically significant result. That 5% is the cutoff line. If, we, if our experiment produces a p-value less than that, we win. And that's it. <laughs> There's no real sophistication or objectivity in choosing 5% as the small enough cutoff line. Fisher said it. And that's been a standard in statistics ever since. There are variations, of course. A top scientific journal might use as their standard for publication a value a little smaller than 5%. I want to be extra sure. But the key point is that small enough in science using frequentist statistics is not objectively calculated. It's subjectively chosen. Another objection that was raised with Fisher's statistics was that his method only dealt with types of errors known as false positives. And having spent the last several years going through COVID <laughs> testing, you probably know what a false positive is. In other words, in using 5% as the cutoff point between deciding, no, there's no difference between the fertilizer experiment crop yields versus, yes, there is a difference between the fertilizer crop yields, that 5% means there's a 5% chance we could have received significant experimental results even if the fertilizer in reality had no effect. In other words, if we conclude that experimental p-values smaller than 5% means we discard the null hypothesis, meaning we think that there is in reality a measurable difference between the crop yields with no fertilizer compared with the yields from crops treated with the fertilizer, 5% of the time, we would be making this conclusion incorrectly. 5% of the time, our perceived significant experimental results were really just due to random chance. There's no difference between the yields in the fertilizer fields and the non-fertilizer fields. It just The calculations just happened to, to come out with a p-value smaller than 5%. Therefore, 5% of the time, we would be saying there is a difference when in fact, there's not a difference. This is an error. And so in choosing 5% as this magical cutoff value, scientists are saying that they are fine with the fact that they will be wrong 5% of the time. So that type of error, getting a p-value smaller than the 5% cutoff and concluding that there is a difference between the groups when in reality there's no difference, that's known as a false positive. But there's also another kind of error we could get a p-value greater than 5% as a result of our experiment. And therefore, we would conclude that there is no difference. We have no evidence for a difference between the groups, when in reality, there is a difference between the groups. This type of error is known as a false negative. And Fisher had no way to quantify this type of error. However, two statisticians, Jersey Neyman and Egon Pearson, reconceptualize Fisher's approach in order to be able to quantify these false negatives. I won't go into the details here, but 
in reformulating Fisher's statistics to account for the second type of error, Neyman and Pearson also changed the meaning of the values being computed. To Fisher, statistics was meant to be used for the creation of scientific knowledge. However, Neyman and Pearson's statistics was reformulated in terms of economic costs, which gave statistics a more industrial material purpose, which fueled the use of statistics in operational settings, such as for quality control applications. For example, using Neyman and Pearson's economic approach, scientists and engineers now had, in essence, knobs that they could turn to control these two types of error for industrial processes and experimental results. How much error should a process have? How cheaply could we make a part while still producing parts that were good enough? Well, now the engineers had a way to dial these error knobs to maximize profit. Of course, while trying to maximize profit, we expect that in industry, in the university, in science in general, you could argue that maybe the creation of scientific knowledge should be the main focus, not profit. However, in the book, Joke argues that this shift in the meaning of statistics from supporting knowledge creation to capturing and quantifying economic value, Joke says that's one motivator for modern scientists manipulating their data to get good, and I'm putting good in air quotes, good p-values, where by good, I mean small enough to get the paper summarizing the experiment published or to get funding for the grant. In other words, scientists could pick and choose or even delete data until the resulting p-value is small enough to get published. This type of data manipulation is, and this this is bad, by the way, <laughs> if, if you can't tell, this type of data manipulation is known as p-hacking. And along with other methodological mistakes, these behaviors by scientists have contributed to what is known as the replication crisis in science. Researcher John Eonidas in 2005 published the paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, where he discussed this replication crisis and the implications for scientific research. But setting aside this replication crisis in science, Joke's point in the book is that this move of statistics to use economic value as its metaphysical basis has definite implications for many of the issues we have with machine learning and AI systems built using those statistics. Our culture is built around maximizing profit, so naturally the systems we build will result from that emphasis. The solution, Joke suggests, is that we need a new mathematics, a revolutionary mathematics, that has a different metaphysical foundation. Now, one step in the right direction, he says, is a system of statistics different from the frequentist approach of Fisher, Neyman, and Pearson. Named after 18th century mathematician Thomas Bayes, Bayesian statistics is a system perhaps better suited to today's data processing world. There are some nuanced mathematics that, unfortunately, we won't be able to cover in a podcast, but it's important to keep in mind that one of the claims to authority for those who favor frequentist statistics, which is the statistics taught in engineering, business, and science classrooms all around the world, is that the Fisher, Neyman, and Pearson methods, they produce objective results. For example, they will say that 
A probability depends solely on the calculation of a long run of empirical trials. No opinions or guesses are involved. Therefore, the resulting number, that calculation, is an objective fact. But frequentist statistics actually has a hidden subjective foundation that frequentist statistics users will deny. In addition to the subjectivity in the p-value 5% cutoff that we discussed previously, the data that forms this long run of empirical trials used to calculate the probabilities are, in fact, subjectively chosen by the researcher, engineer, or scientist performing the experiment. Remember the p-hacking crisis. Thus, as Joke says in the book, this supposed objective theory of probability rests squarely on the personal and subjective understanding of the experimenter. Bayesian statistics, on the other hand, instead does not try to deny this subjective element in probability. Bayesians understand probability not as an objective fact of nature, but as a measure of subjective belief. Bayes' formula uses the experimenter's subjective understanding of an initial probability and then refines that probability, makes it better, with each new piece of evidence that is evaluated. Whereas frequentist statistics is structured to analyze all the data in one shot for one experiment, with Bayesian statistics, it's over time. As more and more data is accumulated, the calculated probability gets constantly updated and better. And it's this ability to constantly update the probability as new information, new data is accumulated. That's exactly what today's internet and big data knowledge economy needs. But while this increasing shift to using Bayesian statistics, while that's promising, Joke notes in the book that this is still not sufficient for solving so many of the problems that we have with machine learning and AI systems, because we're still in a capitalist society. We are governed by the strength of and belief in markets. Joke says, under capitalism, this support system increasingly turns against the production of usable knowledge in favor of valuable knowledge, which more often than not means the production of socially useful knowledge is replaced with an arms race that aims at the impoverishment of the knowledge of one's interlocutors. In the final analysis, what is objectified through statistics and machine learning is precisely and exclusively the demands of the market. In other words, our systems of knowledge production, the machine learning and AI systems that we create, they are fundamentally linked with the production of value in a political economy. So I think Joke's book, Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism, does a good job of arguing for the need for a better understanding of the metaphysics behind the statistics we use and the algorithms we create. The overall takeaway to me is that because the systems we currently create are designed to optimize on economic value, we will continue to have problems with machine learning and artificial intelligence systems in society regarding issues such as injustice, bias, ethics, and safety, as long as we don't critique and update that optimization criterion, we, we, we need to come up with new forms of value. Unfortunately, we are still in need of a 
revolutionary mathematics. So until we develop it, if you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> but I think that's a good place to wrap up episode 27. Note that this episode was the third in our current series of deep dives. You can see the complete list over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Giles. You can also find, as an example extra, a summary I wrote of the recent Linking Your Thinking conference that I attended. But in any case, thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. <laughs>